participating in worship so early. I mean, these are, they're going to be, you know, before we know it, they're going to be the ones leading up, up, up here, right? And uh, amen to that. Uh, uh, the more, the better, and the, you know, uh, and so on. So let us bow our heads one last time, one more time as we, as we break the bread, or before we break the bread. Father God, we're here as always, Lord, we are here because you've called us here, and we are thirsting for you. We are hungry for your word. Fill us with your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to um, uh, the book of Exodus, which is um, where we're going to be um, these next few weeks as we go through the series, as we finally, as we finally delve into or dive in uh, to the Ten Commandments um, <clears throat> uh, these next few weeks. And today we are in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, a very short verse which begins the Ten Commandments itself. This is the first commandment, and it's very easy to, uh, you know, to memorize this, this text. It says, You shall have no other gods before me. Quite simple, profound words, no explanation. I, I guess no explanation needed. On September 23, 1999, there was a spectacle happening off the uh, coast of Massachusetts over there in the East Coast, um, what happened was fishermen uh, over there uh, discovered one day that there was a large tuna, a school of tuna or schools of tuna, running only 30 miles off the coast of Cape Cod. And, um, and, and, and uh, to make matters a lot more exciting, they were biting, they were hungry. And so you can imagine those fishermen uh, sent the news uh, on shore and news traveled faster uh, than the waves. And pretty soon, uh, what we had uh, going was we had this, these um, uh, wannabe fishermen who hadn't seen this, this kind of a, a, a tuna run um, for almost 50 years, 47 years to be exact, before, that, before that, that day came. And so news traveled faster than the waves could hit the shores. And, uh, and these wannabe fishermen, ignoring the Coast Guard, uh, Coast Guard warnings, um, started heading out about 30 miles uh, out to sea. They ignored all the warnings and this fl fl uh, flotilla of wannabe fishermen headed out to sea, uh, small unequipped boats, wannabe fishermen who thought they knew more than they actually did. And rumors started to swirl that Japanese buyers were willing to pay, get this, $50,000 for a single large blue fin tuna. And so off they went, one by one, each boat started to hook a tuna of, of their own. And, um, but then they soon realized that, you know, the problem was not so much catching the tuna as, as much as getting them into the boat. And so they struggled mightily all day, like you've probably read the book by Ernest Hemingway, like the old man in the sea. And, you know, that, that scenario playing itself out, can you just imagine that scenario? Uh, these wannabe fishermen in their small boats, ill-equipped for landing tuna into their boats. Um, you could just see, I, I want to say it's a little comical, but probably they were struggling for their lives, even some of them. They had over, or they had underestimated the power of the tuna fish to fight for its life and refusing to be Japanese sushi. 
And they overestimated their own ability to reel them in and get them into their own boats. That was a big problem, apparently. And when the day was over, news started to travel that, that you know, that, that three, at least three small boats had been, uh, had been severely damaged, capsized because of these pesky tuna who ref- that refuses to be put in the boats, into the boats. Like this 19-footer boat, footer boat, uh, uh, Christy Ann, and, and a 27-footer boat, a basic instinct, which lost all its instinct and capsized. And another boat, a 20-footer uh, uh, boat by the name of Official Business, uh, simply got pulled under, underwater by a 600-pound bluefin. This one bluefin refused to be sushi that day. And you know, the first commandment is a lot like the tuna fish. And we're a lot like these wannabe fishermen. We underestimate its force because we think we've got it down pat. And sure enough, I mean, in relation to the first commandment, when did we ever, you say to yourself, when did I ever worship other gods? It's not as though I wake up one morning and say, today it's going to be Baal. Tomorrow I'm going to be worshiping Beelzebub. Or the next day I'm going to be worshiping the Asherah Poles. When did we ever consult any of these gods? And even, you know, even worse, when did we ever consult a spiritist, a medium, or a necromancer for that matter? No, we don't worship, worship any of these gods. And we, you know, we stay away from them like, like the plague. And you know, we say to ourselves that this is the one commandment that may have been the demise of pre-modern people who did not know any better, pre-scientific people who did not know any better. This is the sin of ignorant men and women long ago, but certainly is not mine. Because today we know better. After all, we live in a modern world. We can spot foreign gods and foreign idols from a mile away and even beyond. And of course, right, we are. We are good at spotting gods from afar. But we're terrible at spotting them from within. We simply do not see ourselves as many of these people of the ancient times were. Polytheists, that is to say, they were devoted to many gods. And if you go to the country of, of India, the Hindus, refusing to believe that there is one God above all the rest, and, 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 and God forbid they should miss one, they worship them all. Over 350 million gods by somebody's counting. I don't know, you know if that's true or not, but a lot of gods just in one part of the world. But we simply do not see ourselves as polytheists devoted to many gods and serving many gods. And, of course, we neither do we see ourselves uh, as henotheists, that is, uh, somebody that's devoted to one god while recognizing the, uh, that there are other gods out there, recognizing the existence of other gods. We are, so we profess to be, monotheists, that is to say that we believe that there is only one God. And sure enough, the Bible tells us that God is one. 
The Shema reminded the Israelites time and again, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, He is one Lord, not many lords. So we fancy ourselves as being monotheists. We're devoted to one God because there is only one God. But are we really monotheists in practice? That's what we want to know. Given our confessions, we fail a lot of times to appreciate just how easy it is to break this one, this first commandment, and just how prone we are to doing so. It is precisely because this commandment is so easily overlooked that it is so often broken and so hard to keep. We let it slip by. We underestimate its capacity to remind us that moderns though we are, we are no different at heart than those people who lived many, many years ago, centuries, millennia ago. And against our claims that we know better now to worship other gods, stand the stark words of this very commandment reminding us that it's, it is not so. It is not so. Not so fast. When the commandment tells us with no explanation whatsoever, transcending time and space, with no explanation whatsoever, simply reminds us you shall have no other gods before me. And as soon as we've, you know, we hear those words, we see that God already grants that even if eventually the nation of Israel finds out the inevitable that there is indeed only one God. And by the way, it took them hundreds of years to realize this to be true. And it took many um, uh, prophets, Old Testament prophets, to remind them to quit being polytheists and start being more than just henotheists and become monotheists. Even with these reminders, a lot of them did not follow suit. Even our, with our confessions that we are monotheists, we fail to be at that at heart. Against our claims that we know better now than to worship other gods, stand this stark, simple, precise wordings of, these, of this commandment. Once again, you shall have no other gods before me. And you know, that, uh, that's all it says. No explanation, no justification, no arguing. As if God knew all along that regardless of whether we are separated by 4,000 years between the first mentioning of, the, of this commandment to today, that we humans are still the same at heart, still prone to having other gods, despite the full orb of biblical revelation that tells us otherwise. And you know, one could wish, I could wish for one, that these lingering gods, these pesky little gods that simply would not go away, that we cannot lose, that all of these gods would simply just be demons. It would be a lot simpler if they were demons. Because demons submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. It'd be a lot easier if they were all demons. Yes, I know that, you know, these demonic entities can latch on to your understanding or misunderstandings of God making things essentially demonic. 
But, you know, come on, let's not blame everything to the demons. It's not all their fault. One could wish that these lingering gods were all demons. It would be a lot simpler. But worse than demonic, we find these lingering gods to be much harder to spot and to deal with because they're not gods out there. They're gods in here. Precisely because these gods are self-generated. They are, in fact, different iterations of yourself and of myself and of someone else parading to be some form of a God. And because they are self-generated, we are often blind to them. And perhaps, perhaps, this is one big reason why it is so easy for us to overlook the simple words of this commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. What do we have in common with those ancients, pre-scientific, pre-modern people? Well, it turns out a lot. A lot. And I want to point out just two ancient practices that we, you and I, may find, um, uh, you know, simplistic and so old-fashioned and so passé. I want to point out just two practices that are, I think, noteworthy. And you will find out, uh, you, you'll find out soon, we will find out soon enough that they're no different from us as we are no different from them. And that a span of 4,000 years did not change essentially our predilection as human beings to manufacture for ourselves the worst iterations of ourselves and parading them as our gods. The first practice of the ancients is marrying Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament and the God, of course, of the New our God, marrying Yahweh off to a goddess wife, a consort. Uh, there's, you know, there's, there's biblical evidence. I was just reading a book just, you know, just this week in preparation for the sermon, and and this is precisely what, you know, the authors of this book uh, is, is, uh, is saying, that there's evidence in Scripture that, yes, even if the ideal of the Old Testament Scripture and the entire Scripture is for us to worship one God and to remind us time and again that there really is no other God in the whole universe, there's only one God. Even with that reminder, that popular religion in the, uh, during the time of the Israelites, and we find so many, so many, uh, uh, so many examples of this in our Old Testament scripture. We find Jezebel, for example. Jezebel was not content at just having, you know, uh, uh, 400, uh, uh, 450 uh, prophets to Baal. She also had 400 prophets to the Asherah. And I'll explain to you who Asherah may have been. In just, a, in just a few minutes. The Israelites did, you know, also uh, did this kind of thing as what their neighbors did, which is marrying Yahweh off, having Yahweh, imagining Yahweh as having some, you know, cosmic consort, uh, a, a wife. Not that, you know, I, I'm, I've always said to my wife, you know, I'm, I'm not meant to be one uh, to be celibate all my life, I need a wife. Uh, and, and praise the Lord, I do have a good one. And you do too, a lot of you. Or a spouse, a husband. But to imagine Yahweh as having a wife is to turn Yahweh into someone who he, who he isn't. 
at the very core of his heart. And this wife, apparently, um, that um, this, this so-called wife of Yahweh ended up, if, if you know, these authors are correct in, in their reading of Old, Old Testament scripture and also the evidence uh, surrounding that, that this is no other than the Asherah of the Old Testament. The Asherah goddess widely worshipped around or surrounding Israel also became widely worshipped in Israel, including by Jezebel and others, infamous people in the Old Testament, including Manasseh, King Manasseh, one of the, one of the most infamous kings of, of the Old Testament, one of the sons of David at that. Asherah, a goddess widely worshipped outside of Israel, was also widely worshipped in Israel among the masses and even among the royal household. She was the goddess, the wife of Yahweh. And the second practice, and you say, you know, you know yeah, what does that have anything to do with us? You'll find out in a little bit. There's a second practice. The second practice is that of, you know, displacing Yahweh and replacing him with a younger, more vigorous God. So there was an understanding, apparently, in the Old Testament, I mean, during Old Testament times, um, that a God can get old and gray. And you know what happens, you know, like, you know, not, not too long ago, we witnessed this, 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 you know, beautiful spectacle of an entire nation over there in, in, in the British Isles um, saying goodbye to their beloved queen of over 70 years. And, and how beautiful, and, and the, the pageantry, and, and, and it's just, you know, you know sometimes I, 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 I tell my friends and, and, and my wife, sometimes I should have been born an Englishman because I love everything English. I'm an Anglophile. I love everything English. It started out when I was just a little kid watching those reruns of, uh, watching those reruns of this, this movie, uh, not, not movie, this, this, this documentary about World War II. And I fell in love with the, the grits of the British. And I fell in love with their leader. And, and I studied everything about him. I read biographies of him, um, uh, you know, and, and, and so on and so forth. And I was just fascinated with that culture. And so, to, you know, to, to imagine to imagine this practice of, you know, of, uh, you know uh, of, of Yahweh getting eclipsed because he's getting old. Like I was just reading on the news the other day that the real, king of, uh, the real king of Saudi Arabia is actually the crown prince because the dad has gotten too old to do anything but sit on the throne. The real power lies in the sun. And in this case, in the Old Testament, it was Baal. The old god El. El, the Almighty, as the Old Testament calls him, is being displaced, or Yahweh is being, has been displaced by a more vigorous God, young, idealistic. The, and the idea is as simple as retiring an old God who retains all the trappings of authority but carries none in actuality. In an ancient Mesopotamia, as I said, the elder God was El. And he had become eclipsed by the younger, more energetic storm god by the name of Baal. In, the, in, in, in Babylon, the, uh, um, it's, a, it's a different god. Uh, uh, the god was Marduk, replacing an older god, old as the hills, named Enlil. And of course, in Greek mythology, Zeus getting replaced and retired by, or replacing and retiring the elderly god, Kronos. Happened all the time in the ancient world. 
And we say, you know, we smile at how absurd and how simplistic and how pre-modern these practices were. But if we're honest with ourselves, we find that we too practice the same things. How many times, for example, have we married Yahweh off to some goddess of social, economic, political, or, or, or cultural ideology? And seeing our own Christianity sullied by these foreign ideologies that, that, that attach themselves so close to our faith that they, that they look and sound just about the real thing. How many times have we married Yahweh off to some goddess, some foreign goddess of social, economic, political, cultural ideology? How many times have we married Yahweh off to some demagogue who tell us what we're itching to hear? How many times do we get, go along with someone who is prone to excusing himself or herself from the most basic of Christian norms of conduct simply because they tell you that they're doing the work of God? We might as well call these Asherah, would-be wives of the God of the universe. And we latch on to them like the superglue, like superglue. And these are all modern forms of the goddess Asherah, Yahweh's consort, purported wife of the almighty king of the universe, the wife that softens him, the wife that, you know, that, uh, um, you know, sometimes these gods could be rough around the edges. You need a wife to soften you up. Don't we all, man, need that? And against this ancient modern practice comes the simple and powerful words that we ought to pay attention to every time. You shall have no other gods before me. I don't need a wife. I stand alone as the God of the universe. Don't make me out to be someone I am not. And what about the practice of retiring Yahweh in favor of the storm god Baal? Well, making Yahweh our God only by, uh, in name, leaving someone else truly in charge, that's, someone, I mean, that, that's something we can easily identify with. Who's really in charge of our life? Who's really in charge of your life? If you can answer that question honestly, then you will have found your one true God. Who is it? Is it God? Or have you effectively made him out to be an old God, old as the hills, while you took in charge of your life? Who's it really in charge? And the answer often is that we are in charge. And you know, once again, I suppose this wouldn't be so bad if we weren't so good at replicating ourselves in the worst possible way. We create not one bale, we create many bales. And these are all, all projections of ourselves because we refuse to submit to the sovereignty of the one true God in our lives. 
hard as that may sound. Not one bale, many bales, many versions of ourselves, and each version parading itself as a warrior God, displacing the one true God. And so Yahweh is kept safely seated on his throne, far away from us, kept at a very safe distance from the center of our lives. Please excuse me for being so blunt. This is not a time for mincing words. Because if we are so prone at overlooking this commandment, you know, it's like, you know, we read this commandment and we say, Amen, next. And we don't really pay attention to the fact that this commandment is the most pivotal of all the commandments. Misunderstand this commandment and the rest of them will go. But if you understand this commandment and honor this commandment from your heart, the rest of them will stay. That's how important this commandment is. If we are not to take the first commandment seriously, we must understand that we ourselves are the problem. Like that one saying that says, I have met the enemy, and the enemy is me. Yes, the enemy is us. We, we may profess to be monotheists, but in practice we are often polytheists in the worst possible way. And they may not have come to the realization in their lifetime, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that there was only one God. In fact, uh, a lot of uh, um, biblical scholars uh, think, and there's proof of it actually, that um, even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were not, in the strictest sense of the word, monotheists. It, it, it would be centuries before Israel itself would come to the realization that really there's only, only one God. At least it, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob gave up their other gods to worship one only. They may not have come to the, to the realization in their lifetime that there's only one God, but, but they picked God over the rest of them. We, on the other hand, are sometimes only monotheists by name. In actuality, we find ourselves polytheists, worshiping different iterations of ourselves, above the one true God. And once again, against this practice comes these powerful, simple words. Like our president saying the other day about a completely different subject matter, when he was asked this question, his answer was, don't, don't, don't. Don't do it. Stop trying to make yourself your own God. Why? Not only because there's only one God, but because you will fail miserably and you will become a miserable person. Every attempt to marry God off, every attempt to retire God in favor of a more vigorous one, you, will end up in utter failure. Because the heart of this commandment, according to Martin Luther, is this. The heart of, the heart of this commandment are the various attempts by all of us of saving ourselves by the works of our own hands. When in fact, as we said last week, if we read the preamble 
of this commandment, God would remind us that it's already been done for you and me. There's only one Savior in this house, in God's house, and it's not you. It's God. Someone has said that monotheism is not just a numerical principle. It is rather a principle for the organization of life and an escape from the chaos of life, a life without a center, a life that is, that, that is, there, where there is no unity, a life where grace is severely lacking, where there is no grace coming from a single source. So stop saying, or stop trying to be your own God. It is a burden too big for you to carry. It was not meant for any of us to carry. It will sap all the gratitude out of us. It will crush all the love that we have for people and for God. Why? Because when we put ourselves up as our own gods, we become all about ourselves. And that is the perfect way to kill every grace that still exists in the fibers of our being. This is not an imposition or a restriction. This is not a commandment that's meant to restrict us. It is meant to set us free. To be who we were meant to be. Human beings. Fully human beings at that. But never, never God's. When we let God be God, we can be free to be fully human and we can let others be free to be fully human as well. And that, my friends, is the fountainhead of grace following or flowing from, us, uh, from God to us and to others around us. So stop trying to be your own God. Let God be God, and you will find at the end of the day, you will be happier for it. Father, we echo the, uh, the words of this song. Lord, we are prone to not surrendering to you or even worse, partially surrendering to you. Father God, we are here confessing our sins. Help us to no longer overlook this commandment and to put you as the one sovereign God over all our lives. We confess that we have been trying too hard to be our own gods. And we confess that we are unable to do the things we want to do for ourselves. We want you to come, O oh God, and save us from ourselves. We confess that there is only one God in the universe and you are that God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.